Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm. Serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Thursday, October 1st, 2015. Before we get started, let's send out a prayer for those folks who lost their lives today at the Community College in Roseburg, Oregon. I don't know about you, but I'm getting really tired of these events. Tonight, we have another interesting show because we have a return engagement with attorney Charles Marshall to talk about rescission. And, surprise to me, we also have two of my favorite people in the world, Dan Edstrom and Jim Macklin, who you've been introduced to before. Dan and Jim have done sterling work uh in terms of forensic analysis and have really shaped a lot of pleadings and proceedings uh, in their own states of California and Nevada and around the country. Charles and I are going to have a little bit of a hash session where we talk about how to get traction and keep it using rescission. And I just wanted to report to all of you who follow this show that the AMGAR strategy, also currently being referred to as the tendering strategy, is apparently taking hold in the eastern part of this country. In a nutshell, and this is for another show, people are making bona fide cash offers to pay the amount demanded by the foreclosing party if the foreclosing party can produce the original note and prove ownership authority and balance. It's pretty much the same as the normal request for an estoppel letter. And they are getting the same results that we have already seen in 14 cases so far. Very nice settlements. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867. And pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has a value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you 
and all consumers. For our friends at the foreclosure mills who are listening to this show, you don't have to make a contribution. One day you'll recognize the error of your ways. Living Lies, with approximately 11 million visits, is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on rescission, foreclosure, defense, consumer loans, and even student loans. All free. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help homeowners and other consumers who are dealing with the crisis that became apparent, but which had already occurred, became apparent in 2007 and 2008. We seem to be accomplishing our mission here as more and more judges are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the paperwork being used by banks, trustees, and services to foreclose. And for the judges that don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained it to them. The court, the trial judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face. And that means when the statute says the rescission is effective, you can't reword the statute to say that it isn't effective. When the statute says something is void, you can't make it so that the statute means it's voidable. When the statute says no lawsuit is required, then no lawsuit is required to make a rescission effective. When the statute says rescission is effective by operation of law, then it means it has the same legal effect as a court order, right or wrong. A judge can't read into a perfectly clear statute new terms applied from common law or any other source. When the statute says no tender of money or property is even proper for TILA rescission, the judge cannot read it, read those words into it, that you can't rescind unless you have the money or property on hand. And we have a case going to Supreme Court now that I mentioned before where the court is going to determine whether a judge can say void means voidable. Uh, one is final and the other isn't. If Jessenowski versus Countrywide is any measure of what the Supreme Court will do with that, we can expect another unanimous decision for the borrowers. If the trust doesn't own the loan, it is the servicer and the trustee who lack standing, not the borrower. And those two things are related because if the transfer to the trust was void, then the trust doesn't own it. And by the way, it's not just a technicality. The reason why the trust doesn't own it is not just because it missed the cutoff date and it didn't do this or that technicality. It's because it never paid for it. And now we have a number of test cases regarding rescission, including those that were sent within the three-year period from when the documents were signed and those that are older and sometimes much older. My answer is that the statute and the Supreme Court are unanimous. The statute, as Justice Scalia says, makes no distinctions between disputed and undisputed rescissions. The statute says that the procedures in the statute apply to all rescissions, right or wrong. But this is going to be another crazy run, where many people are already saying that the Supreme Court was wrong 
and Jesenowski, and so they're just going to ignore it and read new procedures and restrictions that are contrary to the provisions of the TILA rescission statute. Even if you agree that with people who say the Supreme Court was wrong, they could be wrong, but they're final. And that's the end of it unless there's an amendment to the Constitution or the Supreme Court changes its mind. We now know that legal analysts for the banks have looked at this and they've come up with the same conclusion as the U.S. Supreme Court, with which I obviously agree since I've been saying the same thing year after year since 2007. The Teela Rescission Statute was intended to level the playing field and make lenders either comply or prove they have the grounds to vacate the rescission. The tips we're getting now is coming out of those seminars across the country is that the vocabulary is going to change. The banks are now referring to the time that the documents were signed as the time of consummation instead of calling it a closing. And they're going to be using other words that are just slightly off, hoping that judges will get caught up in that. And they might be right. They certainly have managed to pull the wool over judges' eyes for, well, the nearly 10 years that I've been involved with this. But my point is that even if they are right about the three-year limitation, the rescission is still effective when it's mailed, because that's what the statute says. And it cannot be presumptively vacated without two things, a lawsuit establishing standing without the note and mortgage, which are now void, and so therefore they can't use the note and mortgage for standing, and proof of the date of consummation, and even the fact of consummation, which they're going to find difficult, which is why you don't want to plead anything in the court or say anything in in the, re the rescission notice that makes it appear on its face that the rescission uh, that the there was a transaction consummated with someone in the chain of the party seeking to foreclose or enforce the mortgage or deed of trust. I know that's a mouthful, but you can always listen to this again and even transcribe it if you want. Charles Marshall is based out of San Diego, has offices not only in San Diego, but a satellite office in Oceanside and affiliates in Irvine and San Jose. He has clients throughout virtually all counties in California with lawsuits in the same counties and lawsuits in all four federal districts in California and appellate cases in all state districts as as well as a well-established practice of appellate cases before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. Charles, thanks for being with us. Absolutely, Neil. Great to be on the show. Charles, there's no doubt that the three-year limitation is in the statute. We can't get around that. There's also no doubt that it starts from when the loan contract was consummated. And we all know that a contract, as per our first year in law school, is only enforceable if it has three components, an offer, an acceptance, and consideration. Without all three, you don't have an enforceable loan contract. So we also know that judges are going to try to hold hard and fast on the three-year limitation, and 
they may not hold the banks hard and fast to the procedures set forth in the TILA rescission statute. My view is we can stop the banks from invoking the three years by challenging their standing. Without the void note and mortgage, they're, in my view, standing naked in the winds. So we have two scenarios to talk about. One is where the notice of rescission was in fact sent within the three years, no matter how you count it. And the other is when the three years might have run if in fact the loan contract was consummated and it was consummated more than three years before the notice of rescission. And we both know, Charles, that the banks are trying to avoid filing that lawsuit to vacate the rescission. They are trying to do it in motions where they don't have to plead standing, or they don't think they do. So, Charles, what are your thoughts on the procedure of mailing an effective notice of rescission and the procedure for making it stick? Well, I think this is something that, you know, whether this is in California or elsewhere, wherever callers are calling, in, you know, wherever they are right now, wherever they're listening to the radio, show on the internet from uh, you know speaking for California of course since that's my area of practice I can say that I think there is a real potential to get traction on what you Neil have been describing as the 20 day lawsuit time period and the way that would play out uh, follows and that's that's essentially this even if you do the rescission five years later, seven years later, I mean, yes, in a perfect world, the rescission would have been done, let's say, anywhere from one to two years and ten months from the date of the refinance or the other, you know, triggering event. But in the real world, a lot of these rescissions will have been done later. And in our world right now, I think this is still a useful tool because people have to remember in the foreclosure world, whether you're on the defendant's side in a judicial foreclosure state like Florida or whether you're in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, you're always on defense in these cases. And time is absolutely your friend. So if you can keep your case going, get it past a demur, get it past a motion to dismiss, then you can create settlement value that otherwise could be quite marginal. So, Speaking rescission, how do you get your case to go past the uh, the motion to dismiss stage? You do what Neil is suggesting. Now, we don't know how this is going to play out until it's litigated, but I think some judges are going to read the statute to say that even if you file your rescission five, seven years later, if the, you know, presumptive lender, as I like to say, the lender in quotes, does not file their lawsuit within 20 days of your letter, then you bring a lawsuit some weeks or months later and one of your broken out causes of action related to rescission is going to, to, to discuss how they had their 20 days to file a suit, they didn't do it. You don't even talk about the uh, the actual date of the supposed consummation of the loan, which, as Neil has pointed out, another track of your opposition is going to relate to 
the standing issue. But I think the standing issue is going to be something that involves a lot of litigation, a lot of back and forth, and it's important. In fact, it's critical. But if if we can get these cases to go forward related to the 20-day requirement of lenders to sue you, the borrower, that's huge because the standing issue will then become much less important. In other words, to me, me it's still important because uh, uh, obviously the threshold question eliminates the standing issue, but I think it's good to have the backup issue that they need to uh, uh, have the cre- the actual creditor there who owns that debt uh, and who would be injured by the non-payment of it. And I I, I think that's uh, uh, I, I think. My feeling is that we're going to get into a lot of these issues, but that that standing issue is going to get increasingly important. It may not be important at the at the front end of this litigation, but eventually I think it's going to determine uh, how these things go. And uh, would you... Neil, can would, I speak to that real quickly? Sure. Right. I mean, uh, let me just give you my thinking on this. Because I agree that Not only will standing be important, in fact, it could even be dispositive in a number of these cases, because clearly if we can show on the borrower's side that the uh, other parties don't have standing, then the case is over in our favor. But my thinking on this particular issue is this, you know, around this whole 20-day time frame for the lender to sue the borrower. My thinking is this. If if the rescission is made within the three-year time period, regardless of standing, regardless of the arguments for standing, regardless of whether the lenders can establish that they have standing, that borrower is going to have a real shot at getting uh, not just past demure and motion to dismiss, but getting a favorable settlement and having the case move toward trial precisely because they rescinded within the three-year time period. Now, when we litigate cases where the three-year time period was exceeded, let's say it's a five-year time period where the rescission letter went out. If following the analysis you mentioned a few minutes ago, the lender does not sue within the 20-day period, what I want to see is a judge look at that and say, yes, the Supreme Court was clear, the Supreme Court was unanimous, you lender should have sued within 20 days, whether this was disputed or not, we're not even going to look at the three-year statutory period right now. You blew your opportunity to oppose this rescission. You didn't sue. Therefore, the borrower prevails. I mean, that I think, that scenario would mean that the standing yeah, issue I, would be much less salient. But I realize in most cases the standing issue is going to be critical. Right. I, I, I think we're in total agreement on that. I uh, The... The 20-day issue seems to bother some people, but it's really simple. If the 20-day limitation did not apply, then the rescission would not be effective when mailed. Precisely. And the statute and the Supreme Court says it is effective when mailed. So if 
if the bank's arguments and this and they've come to realize this and I got a hold of one of their PowerPoint presentations, if the bank's argument is going to be that they could raise the fact that the rescission should be considered void or something like that, uh, and that they could raise that at any time, that would mean that we have to wait for a judge's order before the rescission is effective, which is the exact opposite of what Scalia said writing for a unanimous Supreme Court. So I think your point about the 20-day lawsuit is is right on target. Uh, but the trick on the ground, as I'm sure you're re figuring out, is the banks are trying to raise these defensive issues in motions, the banks and servicers and trustees, whatever, they're trying to raise these issues in motions instead of filing a lawsuit in which they fulfill the normal requirements, standing, case in controversy, and, you know, a pleading for relief. And the judges seem, in many cases, inclined to allow that. So I, my point uh, has been, and I want to know if you agree with it, that when a bank or service or a trustee raises that by motion, that the answer should be a motion to strike that pleading because they did not plead standing in that pleading because the note and mortgage are void by operation of law and force the judge to either overrule the U.S. Supreme Court or, you know, let it go on appeal. But I think there's a lot of judges, especially federal judges, that are going to have to hold their nose here, but they're going to have to rule for the borrower. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right, both as to the standing issue and also on the 20-day uh, time period for the lenders to sue. In other words, the motion to strike in the scenarios you're talking about, it should be directed related to the standing issue, and it should also be separately directed relating to the 20-day suit period. In other words, the motion to strike is going to say regarding the 20-day suit period, look, lender, you didn't bring your lawsuit within 20 days. Therefore, you're essentially barred from pursuing pursuing this lawsuit. The, the borrower, when he's the plaintiff, like in California, should be able to prevail on that basis. Right, right. I, uh, I think that's where this is all headed here, but a lot of people are still stuck in their thinking pre-Jesenowski versus Countrywide. And they just can't believe that a borrower has that much power to to do what I call a non-judicial cancellation of the loan. Um, Jim, as long as you're on, uh, yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about your upcoming seminar on the 17th? Uh, I will do that. I, I want to make one fast comment about the <clears throat> federal chainsaws that I've run into in my existing rescission case that was, in fact, rescinded within three years, and that is simply this. 
the argument with respect to the time frame, the 20 days, it never comes from the other side. It comes from the judge. And the judge attempts to step in and act as either co-counsel or counsel for the opposition and say, wait a minute. And then they go in and they try to add teeth or sex appeal to the statute that's not there. And I've had no less than three federal judges and a federal magistrate uh, exude their opinion of the statute, which is why I'm currently at the Ninth Circuit. So I think that uh, the strength of the statute is within the statute. And, and I think that it may even end up being a fairly simple motion to strike, as you just suggested, to knock out the defendant, but your problem's going to be with the judge. And to uh, piggyback onto the seminar, that's exactly some of the stuff that we are going to be talking about. Uh, the seminar is coming on uh, October 17th, which is a Saturday. It is an MCLE, which is a Continuing Legal Education Credits uh, approved course by the State Bar of California. Any attorney wishing to attend, we are going to be discussing everything from rescission to complex title issues. We're really paring down what we have found to be successful as opposed to the shotgun approach of throwing 19 causes of action on a 102-page complaint. We're finding a, a nice, tight way to put into 20 to 25 pages under four or five causes of action how to put both the judge and the defendant uh, in a handcuffed position out of the gate. And, and, you know, Neil, you told me this years ago, and, and it's finally coming to uh, the chickens are coming home to roost, so to speak. It's all in the setup. You've got to know what you're doing out of the gate. If you don't, you have probably, stung, you know, stung yourself um, possibly uh, permanently. So we are going to be going into a, a, a great uh, arena. Of those, of those areas. On, on, on those comments, I like to say that lawyers frequently lose cases by being polite. Um, whether you, whether it's time to make an objection or to, to jump up and and uh, state a motion, um, if you wait until the other side has had their stay, their, their say you're probably too late. In the case of objections, and I've seen lawyers do this day in and day out, they wait until the end of a whole line of questions and they say, objection, hearsay. Judge says, overruled. The lawyer sits down and says, I don't understand. How can I get overruled? That was obviously hearsay. Yeah, it was, but you let it in. There's a, there's a time to stand up and fight. And when when they raise by motion some of these defensive issues on rescission, you got to take them to the mat. So that's my two cents on it. Uh, Dan, do uh, you have anything to offer here? Because you've got all of a minute and thirty. <laughs> yep, I can be I can be quick. The um, one of the other things we're going to get into in the seminar is the setup um, that's done before. Uh, litigations filed and includes CFPB uh, complaints and I'm I've been mired in a CFB, CFPB complaint in my case and um, I'm going to go over why I just received a lien release from Wells Fargo on my car after five years 
And so that's one of the things we're going to get into with um, the seminar. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Neil, do we have, uh, uh, let's say, 10 or 15 seconds to leave phone numbers for people to contact us at? I was just about to ask for that. Okay, my my best number would be 619-807-2628. And, Jenna, you leave the... Yeah, for the seminar, you're going to call 530-888-9600, extension 101, leave your details. And then, Dan, please give the web so that uh, we can uh, do this by Internet. Uh, The website's too long. It's on Neil's website, or you can contact um, any of us. My phone number is 916-207-6706. All right. Charles Marshall. Dan Edstrom, Jim Macklin, thank you for joining us. I look forward to us doing this again. And at Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.